This morning, we are continuing our series in Genesis. And um, we are going to come to chapter 37 in this book. And I titled today's message, A New Vision. And here's the question that kind of spurred the title today. I, I have another title I may share with you, I may, for this message that may be more accurate for it. But the question that kind of spurred this title this morning is this. What would one's life look like if they were absolutely, truly serious about following Jesus Christ? We, we, we know we have Jesus as our model of a life that he lived. But let's be honest, Jesus is perfect. Jesus is absolutely perfect. He's God in the flesh. And we know that, that we can't, as we look at Jesus and say, well, I can't be Jesus. Right? I mean, so we look at that example of Jesus, we're like, man, that's just, wow, he's Jesus. He's absolutely Jesus. I mean, absolutely perfect. Never sinned in his entire life. Think about that. Even as an infant. I don't know what it means as an infant to never sin. You know, as a baby, to never sin. But he never sinned. I don't know what it means as a toddler. Think about this. Jesus was a toddler. He never sinned. He never took another person's ball. Right? He never bit his siblings out of anger. He never pulled their hair. He never tricked them into doing things for his pure enjoyment, right? I mean, he never did that. He never, as the oldest of the siblings, I would assume, never exerted his influence over them and beat them up to keep them in line, right? Think about that. He was absolute, as a teenager, he never took the car out on a joyride, not that they had cars, the donkey, I don't know, whatever, take it. You know, he never took them out on a joyride. You know, Dad, I took the donkey out for a little bit. Where'd you go, son? What'd you do? Why'd you go there? Never had to worry about that. It's Jesus, right? In fact, the time that he did go away, it was his parents who left him. And, you know, the answer he gave is, well, I'm in my father's house. Where else do you think I would have been? Right? Kind of thing. I mean, he was just perfect, and so sometimes I think there can be somewhat of a disconnect. When we look at Jesus' life and compare it to ours, we're just so unworthy and we truly are. So when I ask this question, what would our lives or what would a life look like of one who was absolutely devoted to honoring God and to serving Jesus Christ? I'm asking that as a question of who can we look to other than Jesus Christ? Who is maybe actually just like you and me. That's the question I want us to wrestle with today, because the person we're going to look at today is a guy by the name of Joseph. Now, interesting about Joseph is many of us, if we've spent any time in Scripture, have heard of Joseph. We are familiar with this guy named Joseph. Here's a really interesting thing about Joseph, that from chapter 37 all the way to the end of Genesis, Genesis 50, we deal with the life of Joseph. In other words, nearly 25% of the book of Genesis is dedicated to Joseph. He is more written about than Adam and Eve, who, by the way, messed up. They started this whole thing. And if you really want to be honest, it's the woman's fault. I'll let it sit there for a minute. I get it. No, it wasn't the woman's fault. It was the man's fault. I, I understand that. Anyways, 
and then we move on from there to like Noah. And Noah, while he was righteous, he, we know he wasn't perfect. He himself got drunk. The very first thing he pretty much does, at least as far as we know, as he gets off that ark, is he drinks to get drunk. I understand. Cooped up on a boat with animals and your family. Right? Maybe some of us understand that. We've been cooped up for a year. How's that working for you? That bad, huh? I mean, you know, just stuff like that. Here's the thing is then we move on to Abraham and Abraham was, you know, he had his issues. God said, I'm going to make you a great nation. You're going to have a child. Well, he took that into his own hands, didn't he? He certainly had a child. It was not the way that was supposed to go, though. Right. And then we move on to Isaac and he, he himself wasn't perfect. And then, well, Jacob, oh, there was major issues there. But now we come to Joseph, who was a son of Jacob. And here's the really interesting thing is that 25% of the book of Genesis deals with Joseph more than any other character in the Bible, as much of the characters that we know in Genesis. Joseph gets the most print time. And not only that, what we know about Joseph, as we're going to see today, is there is not one thing that is said negative about him. Not one in his entire collection of stories that we're going to see today, not one thing do we see in there of Joseph doing something wrong. Now, that doesn't mean he was perfect. He wasn't. He was human, just like you and me. However, it seems interesting that the writer of Genesis, although acknowledging that Joseph was not perfect, says it is really good for us to look at this man's life. And in doing so, to look at the honorable things he did. To look at the things that he did that was so good that it is absolutely replicable, if you will. And an example for those of us who have now come behind Joseph in this. Remember, this whole story of Genesis moving forward through Abraham was simply this, is that God called a people to himself and said this, I will bless you so that you can be a blessing. Well, that is our call, I believe, even for those of us today who follow Jesus Christ, is that Jesus has blessed us and now we are called to be a blessing. Here's the question. What does that look like to do that? What kind of life does that mean for us? This morning, we are going to look at this life of Joseph from a 30,000 foot perspective. Here's why. And don't get too concerned yet. It's interesting. I have to say, don't get too concerned or don't get too worried. We're going to get out of here. But we're going to cover in today, hopefully, five chapters in Genesis. Five chapters. It's okay. You're going to make your, your lunch. It's okay. You're going to get out of here. Uh, but we're going to cover this life of Joseph. And it, not only that, we're going to cover today a specific area of Joseph's life. But because so much is written about him, we're also going to talk about him next week as well. He's worthy of it. If 25% of the book of Genesis is dedicated to this guy, I think we need to spend more than one week on him. And so we're going to look at him today as well as next week. And so this morning, here's the thing. What would it look like or what does it look like to actually be blessed by God and to be a blessing to others? What does it look like for us to actually live our lives dedicated to honoring God and serving Jesus Christ? 
That's the questions, or questions rather, that we are going to answer or try to attempt to answer today. And I think as we look at today's passages, plural, I think that there are four specific things that a life may look like, may look like, that is dedicated to following Jesus Christ. And let me just say up front, you're probably not going to like them. I didn't. It's hard. But there's good news, so hang with me. But there are four specific traits from what I have seen in these chapters that we're going to look at today that I think help to define what a life looks like truly desiring to honor God. Are you ready to hear these four things this morning? Are you ready to be challenged this morning, possibly, about whether or not maybe are our lives lined up in a way that maybe is truly honoring God? Doesn't maybe necessarily have to say, have these same traits, but it may have aspects on them. Are you ready to actually be challenged in that way? Okay, you said it. You said it. I'm going to hold you to it. Okay? Here are four things, and we're going to go through this rather generally here. The first one is this, and we're going to start with chapter 37 of Genesis, but the first one is this. You and I will be hated for telling the truth. A life that is dedicated to truly following Jesus Christ is a life that is going to be dedicated to following and sharing the truth. And in doing so, we will be hated for it. As Joseph was. Let's start out with this young man as we pick it up here in chapter 37 of Genesis, beginning with verse 1. And this is the first time we are introduced to Joseph. And here's what the writer of Genesis says. Now Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned. In the land of Canaan. And these are the records of the generations of Jacob. Joseph, when 17 years of age, was pasturing the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Beliah and the sons of Zelpha, his father's wives. And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. Uh-oh. First time we get introduced to Joseph, he's 17 years old, he's out with the flock with his brothers, half-brothers, wives that Joseph had mar- or Jacob had married, and he is now bringing back a bad report to their father. You've heard the phrase, snitches get stitches. Right? Giving a bad report about his brothers. Some may say he's tattling on them. Some may say, well, he's just simply giving a report. He's updating his father as to what's really going on. Remember, it's more than just simply pastoring flocks. This was a family business. That's how you made living. All this kind of stuff. Now Israel, that being Jacob, loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of, a, of his old age and he made him a very colored tunic or a coat of many colors. And his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, and so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. Now, here's a couple of things we're seeing here already, is that we see family dynamics being passed from one generation to the other. Remember, this is not the first time favoritism was shown. Remember, this began all the way back to Abraham, who favored Isaac over Ishmael. And then from there, Isaac favoring Esau over Jacob from there. And then now you have Jacob favoring Joseph over any of his other children. Do you, do you see that there's favoritism that 
just tends to repeat itself over and over and over again. It's generational. It started with Abraham and it's continuing all the way through now with even Jacob. And Joseph is the favored one here. And there are many reasons why. Most likely, as we're going to see here, he wasn't like his brothers who were not very good guys. Okay? Now, to make matters worse, verse 5, it says this. Then Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. Here's why. And he said to them, Please listen to this dream which I have had. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf rose up and also stood erect, and behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. It doesn't take much to picture the situation. He's one of the youngest. Benjamin would only be younger than him. And he is telling his brothers, who, by the way, he has already told on them what they are really doing. And secondly, knowing that their father has already favored him above anyone else and has given him this beautiful coat, which, by the way, would be a symbol of kind of royalty almost. as almost if to say, son, uh, when I give you this coat, you are now no longer just simply a worker. You're now management in my company. You now will be supervising others. Because this tunic wasn't just a normal tunic. This tunic most likely went down all the way to his wrists and his ankles. This covered his entire body. This was a royal tunic. This was a tunic that said, yes, I am not just simply a servant. I am more than that. And so now, to make matters worse, is he has this dream and he shares it in which he says to all of his brothers, yeah, by the way, you all are going to bow down to me. This is not going well. Not going well at all. And they hated him even more. Now, verse 9. He still had another dream and related it to his brothers and said, Lo, I have had still another dream and behold, the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. He related it not only to his brothers but also to his father and his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come down to bow ourselves before you on the ground? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Do you understand what's happening here? Is that Joseph has done nothing wrong. He's not doing anything wrong. All he is doing is sharing the truth. He is sharing what it is that he has been dreaming. He is sharing as well as what his brothers are doing, realizing that in doing so, he may be putting himself in danger. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes as a follower of Jesus Christ, there are times that we are called to share the truth. To share the truth. That there are things that happen in our country, in our world, in our society, in our culture, even here in our own city, that sometimes we have got to, as Christians, call out and say, that is wrong, or that is right, or this is truth, and this is not. And by the way, in doing so, we put ourselves in danger. We risk others not liking us, or even worse, trying to do whatever they can to bring harm to us. Right? This is what Joseph was doing. As followers of Jesus Christ, we have at times have to share the truth. Even if it hurts. 
even if people we know may not be receptive to it. As followers of Jesus Christ, we know this. This has been true ever since the beginning. Jesus Christ is God and He is our Lord and Savior. No other way can someone come to the Father except through Jesus Christ. That's it. If one wants to be saved, you have to accept Jesus Christ. That's just truth. If you don't believe that, then everything else doesn't work. Simply doesn't work. How many of you have tried to share that with others and have been spurned? Have gotten an angry response? Have been told to be quiet? How many of you have shared the gospel message? It's good news. How many people haven't wanted to hear good news? Right? Here's another way of saying that. Jesus said this. Have you ever come across this in Jesus' sayings? Depending upon your translation, maybe you have the King James Version. Um, if you do, I'll pray for you. Um, but, but the King James Version is verily, verily. Have you ever seen that? Verily, that old English, right? Verily, verily. Or truly, truly, I say unto you. Right? It just sounds better. I grant that. King James has some value. Um, but, you know, verily, verily, I say unto you. What is Jesus saying there? Or as it's oftentimes translated in other versions of the Bible, truly, truly, or truly, 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 truly. I say this. Here's what that oftentimes means, and this is what is so important about us as Christians telling the truth, is that when Jesus says that line, and by the way, He says it at least 70 times in the New Testament. Depending upon your translation, He may even say it as high as 78 to 80 times. Very truly, or verily, verily, I say unto you. What is, why does Jesus need to say that? What is He trying to communicate? Well, what He's trying to say there is that He is trying to communicate to them absolute truth. Absolute truth about this. By the way, just FYI, I have a smartwatch here. Randall just called me out for, for talking about the KGB. <laughs> I got you, Randall. He's watching. <laughs> I love you, brother. But I'm praying for you. Um... <laughs> Oh, I love live streaming. Here's the thing. Jesus, when he says something like that, he is not just simply saying, now I'm finally telling the truth. No, what he's saying is, I am being transparent as I possibly can with you. Everything I can possibly share with you about what is true, I am sharing with you now. I am holding back nothing. I am being absolutely transparent. So when Jesus says to his disciples, as he is about ready to go and be crucified and to be tried and all of the dark things that will happen to him. His disciples know that he is going away. He has told them, and I am not coming back. And his disciples are absolutely saddened and, you know, just torn up about this. And he says, listen, very, very truly I tell you, or verily, verily, it is better that I go away. Because if I go away, the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, the Paraclete will come. In other words, in that moment, Jesus is being as transparent as he can. Transparent as he can. And to say, this is all of who I am sharing it with you. I am holding nothing back. We as followers of Jesus, when it comes to the good news, we should hold nothing back. We need to tell the truth. We need to be transparent. And here's what that transparency may involve. We need to be transparent not only in what the message of the gospel is, not only in the message of what the gospel is, 
but also how it has changed us personally. We need to be transparent with the fact of who we were before we came to know Jesus. Appropriately so. We need to be transparent in the way that we share the gospel and say, this is the way that Jesus changed my life. Listen, you know, I, I am not a perfect person. But Jesus, oh, but for the grace of God, go I. Right? We need to be transparent with people. We need to hold nothing back when it comes to sharing the truth of the gospel and what the gospel has done. We need to say to people, truly, truly, I say to you. You don't have to say it that way. But we just need to be absolutely transparent and honest and real with them. As Jesus was with his disciples, he held nothing back from them at all. At all. That's what Jesus says. And it's interesting, I was kind of experimenting with this, trying to figure out, man, you know what? If I had to be transparent with all of you, and I have been at times, I'll be again. Very truly, I tell you, I don't have all the answers. If you would ask me, Dan, what is the way forward for Summit Ridge right now in this time? I'll be honest with you, I don't quite know. Very truly, I tell you, I don't have all the answers. Very truly, I tell you, there are some times I fake it until I make it. Very truly, I tell you, I am absolutely unqualified. Very truly, I tell you, I am not the best husband and father I could be. Very truly, I tell you, I am not the best pastor I could be. Very truly, I tell you, I feel like a failure a lot of the times. Very truly, I tell you, I love ice cream. <laughs> Actually, if I'm really, really truthful about it, custard, frozen custard. I love frozen custard. I have to stay away from, uh, the best thing is Culver's. I have to, it's the only closest thing to Wisconsin custard you can have, which by the way is the best custard. I love that stuff. Yes, I love to rock out at times. Very truly, I tell you to Backstreet Boys. <laughs> Very truly, I tell you, I don't like country music. Very truly, I tell you, I love movie scores. Very truly, I tell you, I have issues. We just need to be transparent, appropriately so. We do no one favors by holding back the truth. We might look at the life of Joseph and say, well, he was just a kiss up. He was hiding things. No, 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 no. He was just simply being transparent. He was being transparent. He was sharing the truth. This is what was going on. And when we do this, when we share things like Jesus is the Savior of the world, there is no one else who can do this except Jesus Christ. And when we share things like that and other things that are related to our following of Jesus, whether it comes to marriage and sex and finances, etc., 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 we will be hated. People do not always want to hear those things because it challenges them, because it exposes them, 
because it ruins their thought process and wrecks the world they have created. It is something that people don't always welcome. And yet, that is the life that Joseph lived. And that is a life, I believe, as a follower of Jesus. We, too, will live. We will tell the truth and will be hated for doing so. And here is how it went for Joseph in telling the truth. It says this, verse 12. Then his brothers went to pasture their father's flock in Shechem. Now, Shechem is a really interesting place. I'll just briefly describe this. This was a place where... Um, some of the sons of Jacob, uh, one of their sisters was taken advantage of there. And some of the sons of Jacob went to the people, the guys there, and said, okay, okay, we understand you, some of you took, or this gentleman took advantage of our sister. He wants to marry her now and all this kind of stuff. i tell you what, um, in order for that to happen, all of you have to be circumcised. All the males have to be circumcised, and then it'll be a good. Well, the men got all circumcised. They agreed to it. And while they were recovering from their circumcision, the sons of Jacob went in there and slaughtered all the males, killed them all. These are not good guys. Killed them all. That was this place, Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock in Shechem? Come, and I will send you to them. And he said to them, I will go. And then he said to them, Go now and see about the welfare of your brothers and the welfare of the flock, and bring word back to me as he was used to do in a report. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and came to Shechem. A man found him, and behold, he was wandering in the field, and the man asked him, What are you looking for? And he said, I'm looking for my brothers. Please tell me where they are pasturing the flock. Then the man said, they have moved from here, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan, which was an additional 12 miles north. Now, why would they do that? They were supposed to be in Shechem. They weren't there. Instead, they were headed up to Dothan, which is a major trading city, about another 12 miles. By the way, this was no walk in the park. Uh, just to even get to Shechem where Joseph was, that would take about five days to get there. And then it was an additional 12 miles even beyond there. So we're talking pretty far away. Chances are these brothers were up to no good. Because if you're up to no good, you want to get as far away from your parents as possible. If you're going to do something that you know they're not going to approve of, you want to do it away from them. Right? You want to get away from them because you don't want to get caught. You don't want to be anywhere near them. So chances are they were up to no good by going even, even that far. And so he went there. He said, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Now here's what happened. When they saw him from a distance and before he came close to them, they plotted against them to put to death. And they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. No, that's not the right way to say it. Ah, uh, here comes this dreamer. What a slime ball. What a kiss up. What a daddy's boy. Right? See that cloak? Man. Now, then, come and let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits and we will say a wild beast has devoured him. Then let us see what will become of his dreams. Nice. If these guys killed... An entire village of guys, trust me, they were certainly capable of killing their brother and probably wouldn't think much of it. But Reuben, who was the oldest, heard this and rescued him out of their hands and said, let us not take his life. Reuben further said to them, shed no blood. Throw him into this pit that is in the wilderness, which was most likely a cistern where you could draw water from. So it was a pretty deep pit. But do not lay hands on him that he might 
so that he might rescue him out of their hands to restore him to his father. Reuben most likely had already did this. He had already committed a grievous sin against his father. He had sexual relations with one of his father's concubines, which was a big no-no. And most likely Reuben was trying to get into the good graces of his father once again. And so he is trying to work this out and saying, listen, don't, don't kill him. Let's just put him in this pit. And it was Reuben's plan to come and rescue Joseph out of that pit as soon as his brothers went away. It didn't turn out that way. So it came about when Joseph reached his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the very colored tunic that was on him, and they took him and threw him into the pit. Now the pit was empty without any water in it. And then they sat down to eat a meal. No, no, don't skip over this part. After they threw their brother into a pit, they stripped him first. Probably, you know, put a couple of punches in on him as well. Right? In the process. Threw him into a pit. They sat down and ate a meal. I'm hungry. That took a lot of work out of me. Let's eat. Really? Unbelievable. All right. It goes on. And he says this now. And as they raised their eyes and looked, behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites was coming from Gilead. And their camels bearing aromatic gum and balm and myrrh on their way to bring them down to Egypt. And Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. And he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. And some of the Midianite traders passed by. And so they pulled him up and lifted Joseph out of the pit. And they sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Thus they brought Joseph into Egypt. Now think about that. Instead of killing him, they said, let's make a profit. So they sold their brother for 20 shekels of silver. Now, that price, it's debated. It was either a low price or it was a price not for simply a good slave, but chances are it was a price for a handicapped slave, a slave who wasn't worthy of the full price of a slave. 20 shekels of silver, silver anywhere from, it'd be worth today around $211. But in that time, it was about two years worth of wages. Eight ounces of silver. Eight ounces. Take out your cell phone. Hold it. That's about eight ounces. Give or take. Imagine that. A human life sold for eight ounces. Happens all the time. And so Joseph was sold into slavery. We know what happens here. Is that after he was sold into slavery, verse 29 says this, Now Reuben returned to the pit, and behold, Joseph was not in the pit. So he tore his garments. He returned to his brothers and said, The boy is not there. As for me, where am I to go? Reuben is really nervous. He's scared. He doesn't know what to do. He was trying to bring Joseph back, trying to get in the good grace of his dad, and now he's gone. So they took Joseph's tunic and slaughtered a male goat and dipped the tunic in blood. And they sent it and brought it to their father and said, We found this. Please examine it to see whether it is your son's tunic or not. And then he examined it and said, It is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him and Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. So Jacob tore his own clothes and put sackcloth on his loins, and mourned for his son many days. Then all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, Surely I will go down to, the, to Sheol, or which is kind of this dark place, not necessarily hell, 
but pretty darn close, in mourning for my son. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold him to Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer, the captain of the bodyguard. What is so amazing here is that, once again, you see a cyclical thing happening in families. They took Joseph's tunic and killed a goat and dipped the tunic in blood. This we have seen before. This was something that happened with Jacob himself, in which, as he was going to deceive uh, you know, his brother Esau out of his inheritance, his mother said, go and kill a goat, and I will prepare a meal, and you will take it into your father Isaac, and will put the fur of that goat on your arm, because you're smooth-skinned, but your brother has got hairy skin, hairy arms. Same thing, you see this repeated here. Deceiving. Listen, we will be hated for telling the truth. If you haven't already been, give it time. It will happen. It will happen. Okay. Number three. Or number two, excuse me. Number two, number two, number two. And here's, let me just say one more thing about this. I got one more thing I got to say. Here's why we'll also be hated. And, and I think Paul says it well in 2 Timothy. And I, I would just be remiss if I didn't share this with you. He says this in 2 Timothy as he's sharing uh, some advice with his protege, um, Timothy. And he says this in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1-5. through 5, And he says this, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing in His kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort, and with great patience and instruction. For the time will come, and this is key, why we will be hated when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled. Not literally, figuratively. Wanting to hear the things that they already believe and to have those things confirmed in them. Not having things that are be challenging to their thought process, but rather to be able to come to church and for the pastor to stand up there and to affirm what they have already believed wouldn't you love a pastor every single Sunday who shared exactly what you wanted them to say? Oh, what a great time that would be. Pastor and I are one, and because the pastor and I are one, God and I are one. He's the pastor. I can't tell you, man, we are just on the same wavelength. I'm doing exactly, and I believe exactly the way God wants me to believe. Oh, what a great day that would be, right? To never be challenged. To never have criticism. Wouldn't that be great? To come into church every Sunday and to think, oh, I got it. Ha, there's nothing new I need to learn. I'm good to go. The preacher's going to just share exactly what I want him to share. In fact, here's, here's an idea. Why don't we do this? We're not really going to do this. Why don't we put a box out there and you guys put in there the things you want me to share? Yeah, how well that go, right? We live in a world where people, in ourselves included, want to have things shared with us that we like. To have things shared with us that we agree with. To have things shared with us that we enjoy. I, I have talked with some Christians, and, and again, we've come out of this horrible, troubling election season and everything else, that I've had some Christians that I've heard and some Christians I've dealt with and stuff that said, listen, I don't want to be told about 
necessarily scripture. I want the pastor to tell me how to vote and how to do things. I want the pastor to confirm in my in me what I already believe. That's dangerous. We live in a world where people want to hear what they already believe and what they're already doing is good. And the fact of the matter is, as Christians, that is not always going to be the case. We are going to be hated for telling the truth. Here's number two. Here's number two. You and I will be treated unjustly for doing what's right. You and I will be treated unjustly for doing what's right. Same thing happened with Joseph. Chapter 39. And we're going to skip over 38 because that kind of deals with Judah and just gives insight more into how bad his brothers were, actually. Um, Here it is. Now, Joseph had been taken down to Egypt and Potiphar was an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh. The captain of the bodyguard brought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. And the Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now his master saw that the Lord was with him, and how the Lord had caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and became his personal servant. And he made him oversee over his house, and all that he owned he put in his charge. And it came about from the time he made him overseer in his house and over all that he owned that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus, now it says here, that Joseph was a blessing through God on all that he owned and in the house and in the field. So he left everything he owned in Joseph's charge until, and excuse me, and with him until he did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. In other words, Joseph was in charge of so much that the only thing that Potiphar was concerned about was what he was going to eat. Talk about sleeping well at night. Now this is where the trouble comes in. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. So let me get this straight, Dan. Joseph, and he, he just did everything right, and on top of that, he was a good-looking guy. Yeah, apparently he was. And it came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph and said to him, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. And he has put all that he owns in my charge. And there is no one greater in this house than I. And And he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great and evil sin against not his master, but against whom? God. It was much bigger to Joseph than just simply sinning against Potiphar. For him, this was not just sinning against Potiphar, it was also sinning against God. But that didn't stop his wife. And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he did not listen to her to lie beside her or be with her. Now it happened one day that he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the household was there inside and she caught him by his garment and saying, lie with me. And he left his garments in her hand and fled and went outside. And when she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled outside, she called to the men of our household and said to them, see, he has brought in a Hebrew to us to make sport of us. He came in to lie with me and I screamed. And when he heard that I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled and went outside. So she left his garment beside her until his master came home. And then she spoke to him with these words. The Hebrew slave whom you brought to us 
came into me and to make sport of me. And as I raised my voice and screamed, he has left his garment beside me and fled outside. Joseph did what was right. He resisted the temptations that were there and he fled. Let me say this to any of us here today. There is only one solution to sin and to resisting sin. And that is not to stay there and try to fight it. It's to flee. Run away from it. Even if you have to do so physically. If there are things that are tempting to you, get out of the situation. Get out of it. Do what is right and get out of it. I love what 1 Corinthians 10.13 says. And it says that there's been essentially no temptation that has, as people we encountered, that God has not provided a way out for us so that we can stand up underneath it. Whenever we are tempted, guess what? There is always a way out. Joseph, it meant fleeing. But in doing so, he still got blamed for it. And as we read here, now when his master heard the words of his wife, what she spoke to him, saying, this is what your slave did to me, his anger burned. So Joseph's master took him and put him into the jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in the jail. But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. Let me say this. We've seen this twice now. And God was with Joseph and extended kindness. God was with Joseph and extended kindness. As much as what Joseph was going through, through it all, God was with Joseph. And the same is true for us. God is with us. God is with us. Okay. The reality is, is that there are times that we're going to do what's right and we're not going to be rewarded by others. In fact, chances are we're going to be treated unjustly. Jesus himself experienced this as well. He was put on trial and he was crucified over trumped up charges. He healed a man on the Sabbath, a man who had a, a, a limp arm. And instead of people praising Jesus for it, the religious leaders got together and said, we need to figure out how to kill this guy. He was doing what was right and he would be treated unjustly for it. Absolutely unjustly for it. He was trying to do what was right. There's another example of someone who did what was right and was treated unjustly and that was Daniel in the lion's den. He did what was right and got treated unjustly for it. Let me just say this right now. Life is not fair. As followers of Jesus, it ain't going to get any fairer. In fact, if anything, we are going to know even more that life isn't fair. And we will be treated unjustly for doing what is right. But that shouldn't stop us from doing what was right. I want to end with this passage, 1 Peter. 1 Peter, I think, shares some great insight about doing right even when it's incredibly difficult. He says this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 19 through 20. And Peter writes the following here. 
For this finds favor. If for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly, for what credit is there if, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? If we sin and we are suffering for it, we deserve to. It's the way it is. But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. This finds favor with God. There are things, brothers and sisters, that we are going to be called to do what is right. And we are going to be treated unjustly for it. But we still need to do it anyways. We still need to do it anyways. Knowing